itself. This is from the 25th uh, chapter of Exodus, what Julie told the children about. It's about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. Have them make an ark two and a half cubits long by one and a half cubits wide by one and a half cubits high. Um, Make it out of pure gold inside and out and make gold moldings and then uh, cast four gold rings and to be attached to the four feet of the ark and fasten them two on one side and two on the other. And then make a pole out of acacia wood, make poles out of acacia wood, overlay them in gold and put the gold through the rings in the ark to carry it. These poles are to remain in the rings in the ark. They are not to be removed. And then place in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. If you're here on Easter or other special days, one of the things you'll notice is that the stoles I have with my robe aren't near as nice as the ones that Donna or Dinah or Berkey have. But I have something that none of the three of them have. I have a preaching vest. Well, now, it's not technically called a preaching vest, but I wear it when I go to Burundi in Africa every year, and that's what the bishop has come to call it because I'm always wearing it. Four years ago, in 2010, when I made my first trip to Burundi, a friend in the church, Carol Bray, gave me this to put my important things in. And there are lots of pockets for different important things. And it was only after three years that I realized that the pockets were actually labeled so I could know what to put where. So now I do it exactly right. In this pocket, you can see there's a picture of a passport. So I got my passport there. It's a picture of a key, so I keep my house key there while I'm in Africa. And then above it, there's a a picture of a boarding pass. Well, I didn't have a boarding pass this morning, so here's my scripture memory card. It goes in there. Now, on the other side, inside uh, the vest, is a picture of a cell phone. So, naturally, that's where I keep my cell phone. And then this one with a zipper has a picture of glasses. So I don't know if they anticipate people my age, and so it's reading glasses or Uh, sunglasses. So I've got uh, sunglasses to take to Africa and this one. But as they say on TV, there's more. There are even more pockets. And in fact, in uh, this pocket, I keep my pen. So if I want to make notes or or change something at the last minute when I'm getting ready to speak, I can do that. Uh, There's a pocket and I can keep my billfold and cash and other ID in this pocket. And then there's one more pocket that I can break in case of emergency. And this is where I keep my M&M's. So when I have it there in Burundi for the last four years, I have kept basically everything I need with me. If I get separated from my luggage or wherever I am, I know that what, what is in this pocket, I can not only survive, I can, more importantly, get home. It's a very special vest, this preaching vest. But it got me to thinking this week, where do you keep the important things in your life? Where do you keep the important papers? Do you keep them at home in a safe? Or maybe you've actually got a safety deposit box at the bank. Or maybe you're stuffing things in the family Bible. Maybe in a file cabinet. Maybe a shoe box. Maybe just one of those metal in or out baskets. Where do you keep the really important stuff in your life? Well, Moses had that issue confront him. 
Because God was going to give Moses something so important, more important than the people had ever had in their entire existence. God was going to give Moses God's own word through the Ten Commandments, and really, as Julie mentioned, the kid, God's own presence would be with, uh, with them. And so he was told to construct a very special box. That wasn't a huge box, but it was a special box, and it was an expensive box. It was about four feet long. It was about uh, two feet high and two feet wide. Cubits are whoever king is at the time uh, from uh, uh, the tip of their finger uh, to about their nose is about what a cubit is. And so that's how they kind of guess how big, uh, how big this, stuff, this stuff is. But this box is made of gold. It's overlaid with gold. And even with the price of gold drop in the last two weeks, we recognize that that's valuable. And it's also made of acacia wood. Now, I had no idea how valuable acacia wood was till my uh, friend and colleague, Scott Hare, got back from Israel and, uh, and Egypt. And he had been in the Sinai. And he said that in the Sinai, acacia wood is called the Bedouin's friend. And that it is extremely rare and extremely valuable. You will in the desert come upon a few uh, acacia trees, and then it may be miles and miles and miles before you come across any more acacia trees. But when you come across them, they are basically life-saving. They're life-saving because they provide shade. And as you may know, in the Sinai and even in the Negev, it can get 100 and 125 degrees in the daytime. And so the shade becomes life-giving. Scott said they also function sort of as community centers. Uh, because they're so important, you'll see shepherds and uh, their flocks and travelers gathered around under the, the acacia trees that they find on their journey. As you may know, not only in the desert does it get very hot in the daytime, but it can get extremely cold at night. So they can use the wood from the acacia tree to make a fire to keep warm or to cook so they can eat. And they even take the bark of the acacia tree and their sap in it and use it to make a healing salve that often uh, provides relief from burns and cuts that you might experience in the wilderness. Second only to water, acacia is the most important thing that you can find in the desert. And it's not only important, it's rare, and it's not only rare, it's slow growing. So if you chop down an acacia, it is not coming back in your lifetime. You better hope you're not passing that way again. And that's trouble for the people passing behind you because it won't be replaced for years and years and years. Rare and valuable. And God said, that's what I want you to use to make the special box. So I thought about some of the implications for my life out of that story about this box made of gold and acacia wood. And the first thing that came to me right away was that God's presence or an experience of God's presence often is enhanced by our sacrifice. God is asking them to give up something very valuable. And my sense is, if you've ever been in Bible study or reading your Bible and say, you know, I'm not, just, I'm not getting anything out of it. If you've been praying and praying about something and you say, I'm not really feeling it or getting anything out of this prayer, or you're sitting in worship and you're going, I'm not getting anything out of this service, part of the answer might be, what are you giving? What have you brought into the experience? Have you brought your acacia? Have you given what you can? 
Uh, one of the interesting things uh, is a friend of mine hosted a pastor from a different part of Africa a few years ago. So he came to his church on Sunday morning, so my friend, the pastor, was very excited to find out what his African friend thought of their worship service. And his response was, I thought it was disrespectful to God. Well, my friend was kind of taken aback, thought about the service. Everything seemed to be in order as far as he knew. Nothing untoward had happened. And then his African friend went on with the explanation. He said, I think it's disrespectful to only give God one hour in worship. And as you may know, there are many churches in Africa where it's three and four and more hours. And it seems like the longer it goes on, the intensity of their experience of God seems to grow. So I thought about what are some sacrifices that I could make that, that might enhance my experience of the presence of God. And the first one that for me is I could probably focus better in my time with God. You know, multitasking is so prevalent in our day that even the 50-year-olds like me know how to do it. Uh, but imagine cutting back. You can't multitask with God. God must be your single focus. And if you bring in six other things to it, it's no wonder that we're not receiving and experiencing that presence. I think sometimes financial sacrifice or commitment enhances my experience of, of God. And you've probably known this before. You'll take a course that's, uh, and it's free. And so it's pretty good. So you'll go and, well, you don't really feel like going today. So you don't. But if you paid tuition for that course, unless you're an undergrad, you'll be there. You'll be there. You made the investment. So sometimes I think when I invest in the things of God, uh, the intensity of my experience of God in that seems to grow. And then I think another thing is um, what I notice is that oftentimes I'll start something with God and I won't follow through. Sometimes you have to persevere a while. Look at all the New Testament parables that Jesus talks about waiting. There's a lot of perseverance uh, parables there. And um, Scott uh, clued me in on this. He said uh, when they were in uh, the Sinai, one day they went to one of the traditional uh, sites of Mount Sinai. You probably know there's about 19 different candidates for where Mount Sinai was. And there are a few that seem pretty legit. The others are pretty extreme. But one of the candidates, they climbed, they got up at 4 in the morning and got there to the top at 10 in the morning. Six hours. Six hours up, six hours down. And then go back to the book of Exodus where God says to Moses, go back down and get, you know, years before when I read that, I thought, well, okay, you know, go down the hall, you know, go around the corner, uh, take the elevator. Now this is another six hours at least, depending on which mountain it is for Moses. There and back that I think our life with God may just require a little more perseverance and follow-through than sometimes what we want to give it. We, we prayed the request two days in a row already. Why hadn't God answered? And maybe more of that's involved. Uh, that's the first observation. Another one, probably obvious to you as a Christian, but God, God is not um, unsacrificial with us. God asks for sacrifice from us. But God made the first and best sacrifice, giving God's only son. God offered Jesus the best that he had. So that when we sacrifice, when we use something valuable, uh, when we do what God tells us to do, we are just following a God who loved us first and loved us best. Sacrifice is not something that God is unfamiliar with. It's something that God pioneered for us. 
But to me, the, the most interesting observation as I thought about this box of wood and gold was this. I remember a Sunday several years ago when Ray Vanderland was preaching, and some of you may have been here, and he was talking about how in the Old Testament the presence of God is, um, is experienced in a, in a sense uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and the, and the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And the Ark's kept in this um, uh, holy place, and, and, and clearly God is present where the Ark is, and you may know they win battles and all sorts of things happen with the Ark. But then one of the things that happens is David... Uh, gets a piece of land and a temple is built. Interestingly, David won't accept an offer of the land for free. He said, I'm not going to build something for God that costs me nothing. And he makes that sacrifice. A temple's built and God resides in the, in the people's mind and heart in the temple. And this goes on for several hundred years. And then one day at Pentecost, if you'll remember, they are standing, uh, a lot of them, um, uh, outside uh, the temple area of what they call the house. And in the house, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and falls on them, flames of tongue and fire. And Ray explained to us that that's a clear picture to anybody standing around, that God's address now has moved from the temple building into the people. And that's not surprising that Paul then who would pick this up and he writes the Corinthians and he said, you all, it's plural, you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside you. Let me say this another way. Today, in the 21st century, I don't know where the ark is. Some say it's in Ethiopia. Some say it's somehow buried under the rubble of the first uh, temple when it was destroyed and uh, in five... Um, 86 BCE. But I do know that. I do know this. You are the ark today. You are where God's presence now dwells. God's spirit is not in a box. Not in a building. God's spirit and presence is within you. And if that is so, and I believe it is, you are of extreme value and worth. Worth more than gold. Worth more than acacia. You have unbelievable value. Jesus told a parable one time about a merchant that was looking for this um, rare and fine pearl. And he finds it and sells everything he has just to get that pearl. And the parable, in its first telling, most people agree that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and whatever you have to do to be a part of what God is doing, you do it. It's worth everything. I think that's true. But I think it's also true when you look at the parable again that God is the merchant. And you are the pearl. That God has sacrificed everything to have you and to fill you and be in you. And your value cannot be calculated. You are a person of incredible worth. You are the box. You are the temple. But if that's true, it must mean that the person next to you is also valuable. The person outside this building, a person in another town is valuable as well. I'm reminded of a story of a, a grandmother who was by herself in her house in the country one day, and a guy came to rob her house. Now, the grandmother had custody of her two grandchildren who were in elementary school. And so she was at home while they were at school, and the robber said, I want you to give me all your valuables. And her response to the robber was, you can have anything in this house that you want. 
But my valuables are two, two miles down the road in the elementary school. And that's right. And it's not because they were grandchildren either. They're valuable because they are boxes for the presence of God. And so when a person dies, whether it's in a bombing in Boston, a fire in West, an earthquake in China, a flood in the middle part of our country, wherever a person dies, it is an incalculable loss because an ark has perished. And so it reminds us that whatever you and I can do to help even one person is of amazing value to God because we have helped restore an ark. The rabbis had a saying, and I know Jesus was aware of it. The saying is this, when you have saved one person, you have saved the whole world. Because every person has the same value as the whole world. Because I think the rabbis knew every person was a special pearl. Every person was an ark. And what happens to anybody else on this planet matters to God. And so it also matters to us.